it's, it's the time of the year uh, when I start talking about uh, basketball because it's that season and we're still getting to play some basketball these days. And so just have to say this morning how excited I was to see Belmont beat Murray yesterday for the second time this year. It was amazing and went up there and, and won and kind of makes me nervous for what might happen in March because Murray will be a tough team to beat three times. Any team's a tough team to beat three times. I've probably gone too far in my basketball analysis right now in the sermon, but I'm just trying to tell you how excited I am that Belmont's really good um, and that's something that's normal. It made me think about when you know, when I came to y'all a couple of years ago, um, I preached, you know, that first Sunday on the 13th of January in 2019. That's over two years ago now. One of my mentors, Miss Betty Wiseman, was here with me and that day, and I was thinking uh, this week about all the trips that I took with her uh, with the game of basketball throughout the world, um, sport evangelism trips. And one of the places we went was uh, Lis- Lisbon, uh, Lisboa, Portugal. And went a couple of times there with her and the team. And we played some games, but the majority of our work was through basketball clinics with children, and we would share the gospel. And it was remarkable. It was an incredible experience. It you know, created in me those experiences, the desire to be a missionary, a pastor, a person who um, talks about the gospel with anybody who will listen. And it was in Portugal that we worked with Steve and Sharon Ford. And they've since retired, but they were missionaries there for a long, long time. And it was on one of our trips where, and this was no, this was, you know, this testimony is about God's goodness, but it just shows how something as uh, arbitrary or silly as basketball, however you see it, I think it's great, but I know not everybody does, but taking the game of basketball there and working alongside Steve and Sharon, because the the short-term mission trips are, are really more than anything about bolstering the work that is already going forth there with the full-time missionaries, right? And so... These mission journey we were on, it was, it was getting Steve and Sharon into some of the schools that they weren't always able to be in because we were playing basketball. Anyway, long story long. Um, Steve walked into one of the pastelerias that he frequented and had frequented for 17 years. And the owner, the week we were there with them, after just the fact that we were in his kid's school, the owner said, good morning, Pastor. And it was the first time Steve in 17 years had been recognized as pastor. It's a long time. File that away as we move forward today. That's a long time. Love Steve and Sharon. God bless them. When Jesus began his ministry back in Luke 3 from a few weeks ago, if you remember, we learn that Jesus did come first for his own people, the Jews. But we see here in Luke... Luke showing us Jesus' ministry expanding to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And primary, primarily Gentiles reside there. So this shows us a couple things. First, Jesus' ministry extends quite literally to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts that Luke also writes is going to show us that very well as we read through Acts in a couple of months together. It goes to the ends of the earth. But Jesus' ministry going across the the Sea of Galilee to the other side, it's, and specifically the elements that we see in our story today, so something very important, that his power, his great power, is no less effective there, even in an area where demons are running rampant, living inside of people, destroying people's lives. I am so encouraged by this story 
y'all, and I believe that Luke wants us to see that the demons in our lives are no match, no match for the good news of the gospel, which is freedom is found in none other than Jesus Christ. And those of us who get to teach and preach the gospel in Jesus' name, which is not just me, it's all of us, disciples making disciples, God has given us the same authority that Jesus had through the Holy Spirit. So that begs the question, what is it this morning that you believe God can actually do? What is it that you believe God can actually do? Now look closely with me at what happens in this story. There's a man of the city. He is known in the city. And like the woman in our story last week, no particular sin is identified in this man's life. It wasn't in hers either. But like her, he represents someone who is known in the city and cast aside by the city. He did not live in a house. Our text says he lived in the tombs. This implied perpetual uncleanness, uncleanliness, whichever of those words is correct there. Sorry, I don't know. The world saw him as unclean. Now, the house we're currently living in had gone unlived in for several months before we moved into it a couple of months ago. And... After a couple of months of living there, we started to realize that the plumbing was not quite right. And now for 11 days, we have not been in that house because the plumbing is not right. And we were on the precipice of that which is under the house in the plumbing joining us in the house, if you know what I mean. Thankfully, that did not happen. But we've had to live elsewhere while that is uh, getting worked out. Now, here's my point. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that everybody who lives in a house is necessarily clean. That's the mistake the community was making about the woman in last week's story and about Simon. And it's the mistake the community's making about our man in this week's story. Now, we always feel better about ourselves when we can clearly, when we can clearly identify the folks who are not worth as much as we are. And we see this in the community's reaction to this healing. The status quo is being pushed by Jesus. It's being challenged big time. This is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus rolled, as the kids say. What the community had become comfortable with um, and come to believe about this man was, was something that was integral to the fabric, very fabric of the community. So Jesus healing him upset them and created fear in the community, and they sought to drive Jesus away. Now, while recognizing that, that Jesus' ministry is calling both Jews and Gentiles alike, it, that's very important. I see this story even going beyond that to encourage us in our faith today, and it's found in this man's reaction. He was healed. The great power of God took the demons out of him, put them in the pigs. The, the story is remarkable. It's one of our more unique, incredible stories that we find in the Gospels. But don't miss the man's reaction. After finding him at Jesus' feet, which was a common position for a student to, to position themselves at their rabbi's feet, he had clothes on. He was no longer out of his mind. The people drove Jesus away. And getting Back in the boat, the man was begging Jesus, let me come with you. Please, you've changed my life. I want to hang out with you. <laughs> I don't want to stay here. I want to go with you. And Jesus said, 
Uh-uh. And he sent him back, specifically to declare how much God had done for him. So what are some questions for us to consider in light of Jesus' interaction with this man? Now, I ask you, what do you think Jesus can do? The answer to that is anything. And this story testifies to that. But specifically, we see Jesus asking this man to go home and declare all that God has done for him. So I ask you this morning as well, what's Jesus done for you? And what has Jesus asked of you in light of it? And are you willing to do it? Am I? Because, you know, being a disciple is hard. It's hard. Not going to sugarcoat it for you and try to bait and switch you into following Jesus. It's hard. I told you a story a couple years ago. I think of it every time I try to make the point that being a disciple is hard. And it's about an American who decided he was going to go to the Far East and become a monk. And so he did. And he met with the abbot and he said, I want to become a monk. And the abbot said, okay, that's fine. Here's what you have to do. You have to go, you have a room, you have this room over here and you have to, you know, be there. And then the common areas here for seven years. And you can't say a word. Silence for seven years. And then after the seven years is up, you get two words. And so he did it. He, seven years. And he came in to the abbot and he said, my seven years, the abbot said, okay, your seven years is up. What's your two words? He said, cold breakfast. And the abbot said, okay, do you want to stay? The man said, yes. He said, okay, seven more years. You get two more words. So he went back. Seven more years went by. He came back into the abbot, and the abbot said, okay, seven more years. What's, what's your two words? He said, hard bed. The abbot said, okay, do you want, do you want to stay? The man said, yes. The abbot said, seven more years, two more words. So he went back. Seven more years went by. And he came in, and the abbot said, what are your two words? He said, I quit. The abbot said, it's just as well. You hadn't done anything but complain since you got here. Okay, maybe it's not that hard. But I don't want you to make the mistake. I don't want us to make the mistake that we are signing up for something and following and being formed by Jesus that is not going to ask a lot of us. In fact, it asks everything of us. Everything. I wonder if this man, upon being healed, upon being told to go home and declare all that God had done for him, I wonder if he took the fervor in which he asked Jesus to let him go with Jesus back into doing what Jesus told him to do at home. Jesus said, go home and declare all that Jesus had done for him, and I bet he did. And sure, he had a great story to tell. His story of transformation is really good. It's better than mine, I think. But our story is good, too. Whatever it is. And y'all, it has much more to do. Our effectiveness in, 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 in bringing somebody into a gospel conversation. To a, yeah, a conversation about who, what the gospel is and who the gospel originates from has much more to do with the, you know, how, how much we believe it. I don't know if how much is the best way to say that. But it has much more to do with our sincerity and and. and and how it changes, how much we believe our own story, than it does the specific elements of our transformation story. We can all be great at telling about our story, about our story of transformation. We just have to believe it. 
But it is hard to follow Jesus. We may never see the fruit of our faithfulness, ever. And if we happen to be today in the group of folks who are not interested in Jesus challenging the the status quo here, if we, you know, we're upset that Jesus can just let anybody into God's kingdom, we need to look a hard look in the mirror because Jesus is literally calling any man, any woman of the city. And if we don't want him to, we need to understand that we are, very, we are very unlikely to be effective in communicating our own story. We are unlikely to be a willing disciple even, following and being formed by Jesus. And that's not so much God punishing us as it is just the way things are. If you're prejudiced towards certain people, if you love some people more than others, you're not going to be a very good spokesperson for the person who literally embodies love that knows no bounds. It won't be very long before we're found out. Being a disciple is hard. The last thing it does, and maybe most important, is it requires great patience. Just like we may never see the fruit of our faithfulness, it requires great patience. Pastorally, when I see a newly transformed life, I get so excited. I hope we baptize 100 people this year. Let's get going. But also pause. It gives me pause because I know that to follow and be formed by Jesus in in our culture, in our world, it will meet frustration. We will be faced with not being able to understand some extent why someone else is not as excited as we are about our transformation about Jesus. But that's, that's the thing. Much more than any particular gospel conversation we will ever have, our lives must first be gospel conversations. Pointing others to Jesus before we ever say a word, to, to share the good news of Jesus with those who are searching and to trust the Holy Spirit with the results. That's how we define what a gospel conversation is. And I like it. We do it first with our lives. That's how we embody it. That's how we live it out. If I could talk to this man in this story upon, at that moment that Jesus sent him back home to declare all that God had done for him. If I could talk to 18-year-old fundamentalist Brandon who was ready to just run roughshod and tell everybody I could about Jesus and his you know, regardless of how harmful I was going to do it. This is what I would say. I would say be faithful. I would say be courageous. But what I would say and hope to say most clearly is be patient. Be patient. When Jesus tells this man to declare, some, I don't think our translation says it exactly like that, but it's in there. Some translations tell him to declare all that God has done for him. It's the same word Luke uses back in chapter 1 when Luke is introducing his gospel account. He brings in Theophilus, who we think was a student of Luke, and he's telling him what he's trying to do in the gospel for the next however many chapters are in Luke. He's seeking to tell the story of Jesus. 
He's seeking to declare the story of Jesus. And the word he uses in chapter 1 is he's seeking to set out an orderly account. And the way this is translated, it, it, it speaks of a, an orderly account, a painstaking, a careful, getting it right. Luke was patient in the way he told the stories of Jesus in the way that he sought to get across his experience as an apostle. One who was with those who were with Jesus. And in doing so, he models for us how we must go about with our own lives telling the stories of Jesus, telling our story of Jesus. I read this week, or I was reminded this week by a buddy who pastors across the pond in the UK. And he said one of the worst mistakes, he was quoting, we all read the same stuff, so we're just all quoting the same stuff to one another. But he, he said one of the worst mistakes we can make as preachers is we can send all of us away, me included, with the impetus to try harder in our faith. And I understand what he was trying to say, what the quote was getting at. We, we don't want to leave here thinking it's our effort that can do better because it's, it's all the grace of God working through us. But there is a balance there. I don't want you to leave here and want to try harder in your faith, but to leave here and for us to be more patient, to pray for God to give us more resolve, to pray for God to, to tweak our eyesight a bit so we might see more clearly what God is doing. Yeah. I want, to, I want us to leave here today with resolve to stick with it, to hold on to Jesus, and in doing so, discovering over time, over and over again, that Jesus is really the one who's doing the holding. One of our greatest pastors who's gone on to, to be with the Lord, Eugene Peterson. He told a story before he died. Well, he told a story about he and his wife, Jan, and they moved to Pittsburgh for about a two-year appointment away from their home in Baltimore. And so everything was going to be new, and they had been in the same place for 30 years at the time. And so he said they felt the strangeness, they missed the familiar, and they deliberatively set out to make, you know, a new home in a place where they had not been. They received a new calling, is how he put it, and they were trying to fit in. And one of the things they did was they took a walk. He's, he's notorious for his walks with his wife. I've told you about them before, but they did it at noon every day to a park about a mile or so away from their house, and they were Stroll, they would stroll around a large pond, and they would talk to those that they saw and try to get to know them, and they would pray for their new city. They would observe the birds and the plant life, and they would reflect on the meaning of the abrupt change that they were experiencing in their lives and how it might play out in the years ahead. And one day as they were walking, they were passed by a young man on a bike, and he stopped, slammed the brakes on his bike, and he, and he doubled back, and he said, excuse me, can I just can I just ask, ask you how long you've been married? And it kind of took Eugene and his wife by surprise, Jan, and they said, well, 30 years. 
And the man said, I knew it. I could just tell you walk in perfect stride together. You are absolutely in sync in how you walk. I've been married for five years, the man on the bike said, and my wife and I just, we can't quite get it yet. We're not quite there. Y'all, you cannot accomplish walking in perfect stride. It just happens. It takes time. And in fact, if you try really hard to do it, you're not going to do it. It takes time to follow and be formed by Jesus. The older I get, the more I see the grace in that is that that's okay. And we don't have to know everything right away. We don't have to be perfect right away. We can't be anyway. It's Jesus who makes us perfect. It takes time to declare all that Jesus has done for us. Pierre Telhard de Chardin, he often talked in his ministry about trusting in the slow work of God. That's what I would tell this man upon his newly transformed life. That's what I would tell 18-year-old me. That's what I hope somebody told Steve Ford 17 years before he was recognized as pastor in that little pastelaria in Lisbon, Portugal. It takes time. So be ecstatic about what God has done for you and is doing through you and seek to tell anybody and everybody you can about it and go home today and declare all that Jesus has done for you. Do it. And then do it again tomorrow. Let's pray.